everybody to today's Greenhouse Environmental Humanities Book Talks. I'm Dolly Jugensen. I'm Finn Arne Jugensen. And we're happy to welcome today Nancy Langston, who's Distinguished Professor of Environmental History at Michigan Technological University in the United States. And she will be talking about her brand new book, Climate Ghosts, Migratory Species in the Anthropocene, which came out in 2021 with Brandeis University Press. So Nancy, we'll give it over to you to introduce the book. Thanks so much, Dolly and Finar. And it's really wonderful to see you again, even via Zoom and wonderful to be here. If I seem slightly distracted, we have a pandemic puppy pit bull who um, sometimes if need be, I'll put my headphones on, but he's been a good boy so far. And Dolly said, whoops, let's see if we can get this in focus. Anyway, here's a very blurry copy of the book after I You need to hold it in front of your face. Yeah, then, in front of your face, right yeah. there. Perfect. Wait, nope, nope, nope. down. 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 <laughs> there, there you perfect. Go. Got it. Okay, anyway, there's a copy of the book. It's called Climate Ghosts, Brandeis University Press. Um, and in this book, I look at ghost species, what I call ghost species. Dolly, of course, has written on these and called them endlings. But these are species that have not yet gone completely extinct even though they may be extirpated or lost from a particular area. So their traces are still present, whether in DNA, in small fragmented populations, in lone individuals roaming a desolate landscape and futile search of a mate. So we, we catch glimpses of these ghosts, often in memories and dreams and petroglyphs on rock faces as we paddle through lakes that are still incredibly lovely, but depauperate, barren of the blooming, buzzing diversity that once filled these landscapes with song. So I work in the US Great Lakes region now, and my three species that I'm looking at are one mammal, the woodland caribou, which has almost entirely gone extinct in the upper Great Lakes basin. And it's the same species as reindeer, which many of you may be familiar with. And then I look at a bird, common loons that many people think are still common because there's still hundreds of thousands of pairs, but their populations have really crashed and they're at grave risk of, from climate change, but even more so from oil production from toxics. And then my third species is a fish, the Great Lakes sturgeon or lake sturgeon, which is a much more hopeful story. And so much of my book looks at indigenous efforts towards restoration of these three species and also the trauma of indigenous dispossession from the upper Great Lakes landscape. So, um, you know, when a species is just a ghost or what Dolly calls an endling, they're really big ethical questions as well as logistical questions. Like how do we restore these individuals when their genetic diversity has been so shrunk? But there are also ethical questions such as can and should we still restore these species? Um, and the larger question of what do climate ghosts tell us about our future in a warming world? So in Climate Ghosts, I argue that we shouldn't give up on them. Um, once species become extinct, they can lose their really special place in human imagination, and therefore communities can lose the heart to restore them. And restoration isn't just about logistical challenges, although there's certainly plenty of them. Restoration needs powerful stories, stories of hope, and it needs just a lot of heart um, because it's hard, often depressing work. And so my bigger question is that ghost stories ask us to consider 
what can we learn from the past to keep our fellow creatures and our kin and ourselves from extinction in a warming and increasingly politically fractured world. So Dalian Van Arn also asked me to, in my brief introduction to talk a tiny bit about how I came to write this book. Um, and the answer is that each of my books, this is my fifth book, grows from the book before it. And so when I'm writing a book, my previous book was Sustaining Lake Superior. I often come across a problem that I start you know, delving into and then all of a sudden realize I just don't have time in the space of my book to deal with this. So my first book was on old growth forests, forest dreams, forest nightmares. And when I was writing that, I came across the puzzle that riparian areas, the boundaries between forest and water, land and water, had had some of the most intense transformation. Um, and it was a lot of it driven by ideas. And I didn't have time in forest dreams to look at that. So that became my second book. Uh, where land and water meet. And in the process of doing that, I realized that American conservation areas, wildlife areas, had had the most intense use of Agent Orange, of really toxic chemicals of any landscape, even military landscape. So I thought, that's a puzzle. And that became my third book, Toxic Bodies. And in the process of that, I got really interested in fish in Lake Superior that are so incredibly toxic, even though we're so remote from industrial civilization. And that became my fourth book. And while writing Sustaining Lake Superior, I was astonished to learn that there's still a few woodland caribou left in the Lake Superior Basin. I thought they were all like reindeer in Norway or in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. So that eventually became Climate Ghosts. And a tiny bit of background, I trained actually as an ecologist working on long distance avian migrants, Kamai beaters in Zimbabwe. And then I became an environmental historian. And I live now in Lake Superior, which is the world, the largest lake by surface air, freshwater lake in the world, and also the most rapidly warming. And a few years ago, I, as I mentioned, um, I was astonished to learn that there were still woodland caribou on Lake Superior, in the Lake Superior watershed, in small islands in the lake. And, you know, I live now in a world that's almost emptied of living caribou, but still threaded with their ghosts. You know, you can drink caribou carrot coffee, which I don't recommend. It's terrible Minnesota coffee, almost as bad as Tim Hortons from Canada. But we can drink coffee named after caribou. We, you know, all our suburbs have caribou drives, caribou islands. And each summer for the past 18 years, I spent most days in a kayak paddling along Lake Superior Islands where it turns out caribou once migrated to calf. And very, I didn't realize that caribou were until quite recently the most widespread species of the deer family in our Northern forest, much more abundant than white-tailed deer or moose or elk. And I didn't realize that caribou migrations for millennia had threaded water and island, forest and bog, predator and prey, and human and more than human across what became these watery borderlands. So people came to these northern watersheds because caribou made it possible. People migrated across the Great Lakes um, islands because they were following caribou. And woodland caribou were migrants. They were survivors. Even as climate regimes dramatically shift at the end of the last big glaciation, um, woodland caribou, unlike most other big animals, they persisted. They persisted for 1.6 million years of dramatic climate changes. When glaciers encroach, caribou found refuge in what's now the Appalachians, southern U.S., 
when temperatures warmed, they moved northward and people were able to move northward because of their relations with these more than human kin. But now they're struggling. There are like 20 woodland caribou left in the upper Great Lakes. Um, in Canada, 50 woodland caribou populations, more than half are crashing. After World War II, mineral development, forest and energy development in the North has intensified, fragmenting the remaining populations. So I'm asking, you know, one puzzle, which is, turns out we've been trying to restore these animals, all three of these species, but especially caribou for over a century. And yet it hasn't worked, but people have put so much effort into trying to protect them. So one puzzle is just like, how can we have tried so long with so little effect? I mean, why didn't we just give up? Why do we keep trying? And the second puzzle is how do we confront climate change? So many conservationists now say, oh, caribou are doomed, loons are doomed, just give up on them, triage the species that can survive. Climate change is dooming them. But I ask, if they survived climate change for 1.6 million years and thrived, why is this so special suddenly? What, what can we learn from their resiliency in the face of past dramatic change to help us figure out how to coexist now? So. All right, thank you, Nancy. It's as always a pleasure to, to listen to you talk about your research. Uh, maybe not everyone here knows, but we had the pleasure of having Nancy as the, the King's Visiting Professor of Environmental Science in my old apartment in Umeå for a whole year. That was great. So it's it's good to be talking with you again. I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's an interesting project to talk about. And I was struck also by your use of, of terminology. I mean, it's, it's climate goes and you use the concept ghost stories also when you presented it now. So I was interested in a bit in, you know, this word ghost uh, and what that brings with it. I mean, ghost stories, they they do a lot of, of work for us. I mean, they are, you know, they are scary. They're supposed to be scary in some way, but they can also be, you know, warnings. They can carry some messages. They can carry like a morality tale also. Um, but I think most of all, they, sh they should be uncanny uh, in some way. So I was wondering, you know, how how deliberate were you in in picking this term, and did you carry it through in the book? I mean, I haven't read it yet, so I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, I I was deliberate in choosing the term ghost ghost partly because of Derrida's, you know, emphasis on ghosts as in some ways emblems of that which we haven't quite forgotten, but as you say, are uncanny, are sentinels, remind us of extraordinary traumas and losses. Um, and so in using that term, you know, much of my book looks at the trauma of indigenous dispossession. And I very much don't want to imply that indigenous communities are at all ghosts. They're very much the opposite. They persist, they will persist. They continue to be extraordinarily central in the stories you know, and the actions of the North. Um, and I try and really focus on indigenous restoration rather than indigenous trauma alone in the book. But I also get really fascinated when I was poking around trying to sort of develop the ideas for this book, which by the way, had to be a very short book. It's 40,000 words. It grew out of a series of environmental humanities lectures at Brandeis called the Mandel lectures. And I'm very, very grateful for Brandeis and the Mandel family for funding this because that really made it able to play with these sort of big ideas in a shorter book. So I had this one big section on Derrida and ghosts and the anthropology of 
Borneo and how different communities, you know, represented ghosts and saw ghosts. And guess what? The editor cut that out. It didn't fit in the 40,000 words. She's like, could we keep this focus on wildlife, not on Borneo and Derrida? So I sort of had to agree to that. But that who knows if that might turn into the next book, which is my my tendency to sort of develop a next book out of things that had to get cut. But much as I admire Dolly's focus on endlings, I wanted to make this less about the possibilities of genetic ending, genetic extinction, and more about um, this relationship with us of the almost undead. And of course, I started writing this during the beginning of COVID, March of 2020. I'd been on a Fulbright a, a Mellon Fellowship in Eugene, Oregon, and then a Fulbright in Canada on March 15th. We all got kicked out of Canada. Fulbright ended. And so I had to, I wrote much of this in a tiny little cabin with no heat or water on Lake Superior in the midst of this extraordinary pandemic. And, you know, I couldn't see family. I couldn't see my husband because he was on the other side of a border. I couldn't see, I, I got very interested in these kind of liminal borders between the living and the non-living and I was just really horrified by the thought that our funeral rituals weren't able to be completed, you know, that, that we weren't able to communicate that grief and that transition. And that seems in many, many cultures, the core of ghosts, where that relationship between human, between kin gets severed by some by something that happens and you cannot communicate across that boundary. You can't do the rituals. And it seemed like we were, you know, experiencing that. Um, but also that it was a really core part of our relationship with climate change and the potential losses from climate change. So the other big puzzle for me is that, you know, I live in this world, the Lake Superior Basin, all across the north. It's so extraordinarily beautiful still. And in some ways, the manifestations of climate change are incredibly beautiful. These massive storms, eroding banks and, you know, 10 meter high waves that we had a few days ago right on the shore outside where I look. Um, I just saw lynx, literally minutes ago, I saw lynx trot through the forest right in front of my house. And they are in other ways and lynx too. There are very few lynx. And the sense that this thing is still so beautiful, even though we know it's changing so rapidly, trying to grapple with that sense of grief and loss um, at these, you know, really powerful transitions between living and not living seems at the core of ghost stories across human existence, which is why I wanted to focus on that. Thanks. So just a reminder to people that if they have questions, let us know in the chat. Uh, we'll get to you shortly. I just wanted to ask uh, another thing first, and because you, you mentioned and you have three species that you follow, uh, and I'm sure there are many others you could have picked from too. I mean, so in part, how did you make that choice for these three? And was it a difficult choice? How many others were there? I mean, not like exact number, but like, was it like huge number or uh, or just some other relevant ones? Yeah, great question. I chose Woodland Caribou. Um, I had just gotten really fascinated with caribou when I learned, I mean, I've always loved caribou when I was in Sweden at Umeå, I did a tiny bit of work with Sami people and the effects, and I continued that a bit after leaving Sweden and the effects of mines and potential new mines and a little bit of wind energy on reindeer relations. And I've always been really fascinated 
that reindeer caribou are the same species and yet humans have developed so many different relationships at the same time with domesticated versus wild versus non-domesticated reindeer. Um, and then, and when I was finishing up Sustaining Lake Superior, it was just coming out. Some people that I'd never met from Canada contacted me, Christian Schroeder, Leo Lapiano, who was then um, head of natural resources with the Michipacatan First Nations. And these were people who'd been really, really frustrated by working with the Ontario Ministries for Environment because the ministry seemed willing just to let the last 20 caribou just be extirpated. And they had once roamed all the way up to Hudson's Bay, and these were the very last fragment of this population. And so, you know, somebody contacted me and said, hey, can you help us get involved? Can you, you know, help us learn a little bit about the history of this species and restoration efforts? So that was caribou. And then loons, I've always loved common loons. They're such an emblem of the northern wilderness. And as much as we culturally deconstruct the idea of wilderness. It's so, you know, plays a powerful role in my love for more than human things and their calls are just extraordinary. And then fish, I'm, I'm less emotionally attached to fish, to be honest. I've never been an angler, I've, but, you know, I've, I've worked very closely with a fisheries biologist here, Casey Hutkins, who works a lot on coaster brook trout, which is a migratory um, subpopulation that's endemic to Lake Superior. And we had a big grant going on where we looked at, at climate change and restoration attempts at working with these trout. And I decided in, at first it was going to be them, Coaster Brook trout. And then I decided to focus on sturgeon instead, partly because they're globally spread and because indigenous communities, First Nations communities have really taken the lead. And so that's my really hopeful story in the book. It's not all gloomy, doomy, depressing. There's some really powerful, powerful um, stories, narratives, experiences of really successful restoration that comes with the really successful insistence among the tribes and First Nations on the treaties that they were so careful to negotiate over a century ago. Well, you mentioned there, um, you know, some emotional attachment, right? Do you have emotional attachment or not, right? So, and I've been, of course, interested in that. So in recovering lost species in the modern age, I look at- Sally, you're cutting out, I'm afraid. Oh, okay. Um, let's see. So, so in, um, I was interested in the emotions aspect of what you had to say. Um, and, you know, thinking about my own work in recovering lost species in the modern age, I look at different emotional reasons that people would do these kind of rest restorative projects. Um, so looking at guilt and grief and hope. Um, so I was wondering in your stories, what are the emotions that, are motivating your particularly indigenous communities to restore these populations? Yeah, that's a great question about the role of emotion and which ones motivate. Um, part of what fascinates me so much about the caribou restoration projects um, on the Canadian side is there's an extraordinary diversity among Indigenous First Nations communities, even very, very closely related bands. So along, say, the North Shore of Lake Superior, where there are quite a few First Nations communities, but they're Anishinaabeg, or what we call often call Ojibwe, um, and Anishinaabeg bands, even just a few kilometers away from each other 
other. Some are working very hard to restore woodland caribou and others are working very hard to not restore them because their economic prospects have shifted and now they can make more money from moose hunting or from logging or from deer hunting. And successful caribou restoration probably requires, you know, not encouraging moose to come in, a real drop in logging. And so it, it offers a way of thinking about the incredible complexity of emotion, you know, and when communities, you know, sort of displace a core kin member from the center of their heart. So for Anishinaabeg, as for Gwich'in, caribou have long been, you know, there are lots of stories about them sharing a human heart. They're seen as kin. They've always remained mostly wild, but there have been some sort of modified domestication of herding. Um, and so that the stories of them being at the center of your heart persist across these different bands on the North Shore. But the role that 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 historical narrative plays in current emotions about what are the prospects of my community's future being able to stay here instead of being displaced to Thunder Bay or Ontario are also really powerful. So, so I just, I find it really fascinating that communities so close to each other that have similar emotions can take very different paths for a successful restoration. You know, and for Europeans in the new world, loons have long, long represented wilderness. You know, they're seen as the wolves of the bird world, but the meanings of that wilderness, the emotional resonance have dramatically shifted from the terrifying, howling, demonic to much, much more recently in the really the past century, century and a half, starting with Thoreau, as that wilderness, that sense of separation from humans becoming a powerful motivator for restoration, this love of the wilderness, you know, that developed in in the Civil War era, I think, you know, has a powerful set of emotions as well. So I think I'm fascinated by the fact that emotions can dramatically change and motivate very different pathways forward. And shame, as we all know, often just motivates people to shut down and just, you know, erase something. And that I think is, you know, at the core of this environmental humanities sense of perspectives on ghosts that that we can repress this you know, because of shame repress all knowledge and memory but it's still there it's still kind of bubbling up but often becomes expressed in very dangerous ways or very problematic ways so we have a question from ellen unmute you hi um you kind of Nancy, you kind of anticipated the direction of my question in your last two answers. And so I guess I'm gonna focus it because um, I knew that you had spent time working with the Sami and I was curious with your sense of the role of indigenous peoples in these stories and in these restoration attempts and the sense of the sturgeon being such a widespread fish and the caribou being something that exists in many places within many different frameworks. Can the Lake Superior species, can these stories translate into broader global conversations? Or does that diversity of emotions that you just invoked mean that the stories are gonna to have to be retold in every place that these animals are? Um, thanks, Ellen, that's a really fascinating question. Yeah, and, and I might mention that I became really fascinated by caribou, partly because I read Piers Vitebsky's great The Reindeer People when I was in Umeå, which I think is one of the best academic popular kind of transition books I've ever read. 
And then I worked with a Smithsonian colleague, Kate Christian, in Mongolia with another nomadic reindeer people, the Satsun, um, and their conflicts with mining, but also with Mongolian government conservation projects. Um, and then was, you know, have long been very interested in the Gwich'in and, and caribou, something um, that's really looked at very beautifully in Finis Dunaway's new book on the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. So there's absolutely extraordinary differences from place to place. So it's always really, really difficult to take one case study or three case studies and extrapolate to broader, you know, to everywhere. But that's the same for studying history. We can never take one historical moment and say, oh, because people reacted this way 500 years ago, that's going to determine our future. I think these histories and these case studies don't give us, you know, Google maps that tell us exactly where to turn and what, you know, when to put our blinker on. But instead, they give us, um, you know, something much more complicated, kind of weavings, kind of dramatic tapestries that give us a sense of the texture of the past of other places that can help us, if not create a perfect roadmap, create new ways of seeing the things that we face today in other places. So that's a long-winded way of saying, um, what you know, what happens in the north doesn't stay in the north. I mean, I've always been really fascinated by the fact that a place that now is seen as unspeakably remote, Lake Superior. I mean, when I told people what eight, 10 years ago after I left Umeo that I was coming to Michigan Tech from University of Wisconsin Madison, people were like, oh my God, that's so remote. That's so wild. That's so distant. But that's only because of changes in global economic processes. Lake Superior used to be at the very core of the fur trade and the copper trade. It was at the very, very core of electrification that transformed the globe. It's global processes that have utterly shaped what's happening here in this one northern watershed. Um, and I think that's always been the case that you know the, the tribes, the Palo Indians who were here for many millennia, traded the copper that they mined here 5,000 years ago, thousands and thousands of kilometer away. It was at the center of global trade networks. Um, it, we're now at the center of coal combustion. We don't burn a lot of coal here, but our lakes really concentrate the mercury from that coal. And that's part of the story I tell with loons. Um, so these are all globally migratory species. I forgot to mention what's similar about all three species is they're migratory. Reindeer, the longest caribou, the longest ma mammalian migrations on earth. Loons migrate all the way down to, you know, the Gulf or Latin America, where they often really concentrate, you know, toxic oil spills and sturgeon have extraordinary migrations as well. And so for me, one of the core things that's so fascinating is that migration as an evolutionary strategy, but migration also as a set of emotional connections. You know, we form powerful connections to the species when they're here, when they're resident, you know, the beautiful warblers when they're in our trees, but then nine months of the year, they're gone. And if we focus just on local restoration and ignore these much bigger global processes, I think we end up in real trouble with, you know, pondering why our beautiful, you know, warblers are still diminishing when we've overlooked all the different things along their path. So I've just always been fascinated by wandering because I've always been a wanderer as an academic. I'm, you know, I've spent much of my life being pretty nomadic, looking for the next job, um, trying to make home in a new place. And this kind of homemaking emotion, I think, is also really core to my argument. So thanks, Ellen, for that question.
So one thing that came up, I would say, quite often in that answer was place. Uh, and of course, place is incredibly important. I mean, that's been very clear from your book uh, uh, or from your presentation of the book uh, and in the environmental history in general, place is important. But how important would you say for the process of writing was it was your placement in this place? I mean, because you, you mentioned then yeah. you know, how these projects grow out of you being in a place. Could you have done this purely from the archive or is actually your <laughs> physical presence in this environment something that that matters? Yeah, that's really fascinating because COVID disrupted all these things. I mean, I was on sabbatical the year I did much of this. So, you know, the first bits of it were here, but then there were all sorts of places I wanted to go to. The big bog landscape, a huge, huge peat bog, millions of acres in northwestern Minnesota. I wanted to go to the Selkirks with, you know, the final three endlings, the last three of the U.S. caribou persisted. I wanted to go all across Northern Canada, all the way up to Hudson's Bay, you know, and visit so many archives, um, mostly in Ottawa, actually, but also, and then with COVID, I just couldn't do much of that. Um, I had done in the years leading up to it, a whole set of camping trips with my husband and dog to go to some of these sites. So we did camp in the Selkirks, we did, you know, and listen to wolves, we did camp in, um, in the big bog restoration site, but those were just kind of preliminary appetizers I had wanted to really go and spend time and become immersed in those places um, and so COVID made it hard to either travel and so I got kicked out of Canada um, and it made it impossible to go to archives so I had to really look at what was in digital archives which is just a tiny snippet of course of what's out there um, and I was suddenly, I couldn't come back to my normal house because we had rented it out for the year to someone who turns out was a nurse and there's no way we were going to like be heavy handed with a nurse and she was doing important work and like trying to write a book. Um, and, you know, my husband, as I mentioned, was at an old farmhouse that he was anyway, we so we have we had a tiny little camp, just a three meter by five meter tiny little Stuga on or whatever you call it in Norway, tiny little camp, you know, with a little wood stove and you haul water from the village well and, um, and I ended up spending nine months there instead of the usual just a weekend here or there or summer here or there and it was a very different experience and I became much more attuned to the birds as they returned to signs of life in this like really bleak COVID um, news landscape and in some ways um, became much more attuned to what was there right in front of me, but also Zoom land, you know, started doing a whole set of Zoom writing groups with other people working on animal studies from very different perspectives. So I think we all have sort of memories of how strange COVID has been and continues to be in fracturing these relationships to place when you can't go there and to archival materials and to people when you can't hug them. You know, I months went by before I touched another person. It was kind of surreal. I think we all know that. So, so I had to develop a very different set of relationships to place in other words. Yeah. So I'm not sure if I could have written it, if COVID hadn't happened, it would have been a very different book. Well, in thinking about that, then this issue with place and, um, and you mentioned about migration. So these animals are all migrant animals. And I was thinking then about an example I recently um heard a presentation by one of Raf de Bont's students so Raf was on our talks uh, last week um about the white-headed duck 
and it moves between the UK and Spain and how this became then problematic um, because you could do conservation on one end, but that wouldn't help the other end, right? Where it goes to. So, so if, if the conservation action didn't take place in both places, you, you can't accomplish anything. So I was wondering for these migratory species, how that works in your story. Are you looking at one end or the other end, or do you have to look at the relation between both? Yeah, really fascinating. Um, and part of my critique of efforts at say loon restoration and fascination, which is someone just put in the chat kind of starts with the row in North America with his effort at chasing the loon that had come to this Northern Lake, you know, at Walden where he was spending the year in his tiny little cabin without, you know, running water, of course, or electricity. Um, so I wasn't trying to mimic Thoreau, but just that sense of all of a sudden appears this sort of mysterious wolf-like creature of the night that you can hear. And he has this wonderful chase scene where he comes to sort of articulate this kind of respect for the species that remains out of his understanding, in part because it's a migrant. Um, and so that's part of the fascination of migrants is that they do just mysteriously appear and disappear like ghosts, even when they're thriving, unlike ghosts. Um, so part of my argument in the loon chapters, so much of the effort to restore loons has been in recent decades focused on their breeding lakes. And it's been really important. There was a lot of disturbance from this huge boom in North Northern cottage country and lake tourism. When the wilderness began to be celebrated in the US after World War II, and all of a sudden there was all this tourism and cottagers and cottage country. Um, ironically, that brought your, you know, your Americans much closer to this like worship nearly of wilderness and loon became symbolic of that. But, you know, at the same time, they're like, oh, let's cut down all the woods around the lakes and build cottages so we can embrace the north. It was massive spraying of DDT to get rid of those annoying mosquitoes that made it so hard to love the north. There was massive dumping of arsenates and lead in waters to kill that annoying algal blooms that just made it impossible to love the North. And people all hopped in their little motorboats on a, you know, really simplified lakeshore with no trees or vegetation left, just a lot of lawns. And they went buzzing around looking for loon nests so they could zip right up and say, oh, what adorable little loon babies. Um, as you know, the loon parents are like, ah, you know, and no longer offering, you know, um, parental care to the loon chicks. Um, but so Loon Restorationist, Loon Watch, it was called um, in New Hampshire and Vermont and Maine here in the upper Midwest, really started focusing on education, not so much teaching people to love loons because their love for it was part of what was destroying their habitat. But um, and just disturbing them, but teaching them to stay 20 feet away. And there were lots and lots of projects that continue where, you know, kids go out and help build little, you know, restoration, little loon nest sites that are safe from rising and falling waters. And that's been fabulously important, but it completely ignores the fact that eight to nine months of the year, they're migrating to very different places. Um, and that, you know, this worship of the wilderness um, which I participated in. I'm really emotionally connected to places that meet this cultural narrow idea of wilderness as being separate from human. You can contest it and at the same time be drawn into it. But you know, this, uh, this idea that what 
Loon's future depends on urban decisions. It depends on how much coal we continue to use to combust. It radically depends on oil platforms off the coast, you know, in the Gulf. It radically depends that loons, you know, are the classic canaries in the coal mine. They're, they bring with in their bodies, you know, all the toxics from industrialized sites. We go and hang out in some of the most industrialized places of the world eight months of the year. So paying attention to those. So I try very much, I tried very hard to connect those different dots through the flights of balloons. I mean, it, it sounds fairly familiar then to the situation in, in Norway. I mean, a little bit so in Sweden too, but mostly in Norway with the, the cabin culture, which is a, you know, it's a drive to the same thing, to come out and experience nature, to enjoy it, to appreciate it, mm -hmm. uh, and to use it in particular ways. And right. it went from being a, you know, elite phenomenon to being uh, like a very democratic thing that everyone should do and have. And of course, the consequences are enormous for nature uh, and for energy consumption. Mm -hmm. So now we're switching to building more and more wind power farms uh, and all the, you know, people are complaining about the visual impact of these two. So I think there's also something about wilderness as, you know, functional ecosystems versus uh, wilderness as a look in a way, um, yeah, absolutely. In particular ways, mm -hmm. so I mean, they're, yeah, I, I don't think there are like easy, easy answers there anymore. There may have been some, some time, maybe not, but, mm -hmm. but now it's, it's getting very complicated. So, I want to get back to one of the things you mentioned uh, in the beginning, because you were talking about hope, uh, also that it, it matters to you to. To tell hopeful ghost stories, not just scary ghost <laughs> stories. Uh, so, could you say a little bit more about this hope? What it looks like? Um, why it matters? Uh, also, yeah. Um, you know, I, th I think hope is is such an important emotion, um, and I'm not optimistic particularly, um, but I am hopeful partly because. In studying history, there's so many examples of human communities who have built relationships across ethnic boundaries, across political boundaries, across species boundaries, you know, in in um, in service of a shared vision of a possible future. So maybe possibility is a better word than hope in some ways. Um, and so, for example, it's really easy to, you know, critique actors in the past for script, you know, for messing up over and over again. One story that I look a lot at in my book is with uh, the first caribou restoration translocation project, translocation, which is when you pick up a species that's a migratory species that's having trouble or a species is losing its range because of climate change and just like pick them up in helicopters and move them somewhere else. Um, and it's really easy to make fun of those attempts. Um, and a lot of conservation biologists are very uneasy about them because um, they're sort of like, oh, these are only wild caribou if they figure it out on their own, that somehow it seems to make them too tame when you move an animal physically around. And you've come across this so much, Dolly, in your work on the history of restoration. Um, 
And it just seems very dubious to many, many people because it changes that relationship between human and non-human that they perceive as there. But, you know, some of my argument is that we need to sort of recognize the agency of other species of our more than human kin, of fungi, of watersheds, of weather patterns, climate patterns. And that in recognizing that we're not completely able to control this, but we can still think of a new kind of relationship, I find that hopeful or full of possibility. And part of that comes from looking at the past. So there was this one group of European, Euro-American restorationists working for state agencies that tried very hard in the late 1920s, early 1930s to stop what was then the last small herd of caribou from the United States from going extinct. And this was in Minnesota, just two states over. Um, and at first they, you know, there had been a whole bunch of attempts by Euro-American settlers to drain all the wetlands and kick the, you know, the negotiated new treaties that illegally deprived the tribes there of most of their lands, took that, get, you know, the U.S. government or the Minnesota government and the Volstead Act just gave it to a bunch of settlers, said, you got to drain this. And of course, that was utter chaos. And, you know. The homesteaders died, you know, the caribou died, the tribe was like utterly disposed. It's like one depressing story. And here come these wildlife biologists saying, we're going to save this, you know, and they articulated this, you know, incredibly powerful vision of a possible future where wild species would once again roam across the north. This was the 1920s, you know, it was a powerful critique of industrialization, but at the same time, they were utterly blind to their assumptions about savagery and civilization, you know, that they just saw, you know, they knew that severed migration, the migration routes of the caribou have been cut apart at the U.S.-Canada border by hydropower development in Canada. Caribou were trapped and they ended up in this one big bog um, and they were like, oh no, migration is the problem. And so then they looked around them and they said, oh, but there are all these Indians, terrifying Indians who might hunt the last, you know, the caribou that we restore. So we're going to build a fence around them, even though they just identified the problem is lack of migration. Let's just make sure they're trapped. You know, you're around in this tiny little reservation. The Indians are on their side of the border in their little tiny reservation. The caribou are on their side. And these guys were, they were all men, white men, and they were smart enough to realize, well, if somehow the caribou people had managed to coexist for 1.6 million years, what's so different now? And they knew severing migration wasn't going to work, but they were desperate. And so they said, well, we'll deal with this by helicoptering up, you know, flying up to um, to Canada using First Nations trappers to help us grab a couple Canadian caribou, bring them down, and we'll just replace migration with something better, um, something different. And so, you know, they couldn't see that their assumptions about Native American savagery and being unable to control themselves as predators was at the core of their wildlife conservation projects. So I'm really moved by their, you know, intensity, their love for these animals, their love for this possible vision of a restored future. But, you know, there's also some cautionary tales in there. Um, so I, you know, some people could read that as a really dramatically unhopeful story, but I think it's a much more hopeful story about, you know, these people eventually came to recognize that they'd made some really big mistakes. And so, I think in looking at these links between 
um, indigenous communities now who are really the core of a focus on restoration of Lake Sturgeon, we can look at, at much more hopeful possibilities for the future where it's not that your Americans or Europeans have to step aside completely, but have to recognize that there are other visions of what's called two-eyed seeing, um, you know, which really integrate traditional knowledge and modern scientific knowledge and try and borrow the best of them and link them into one. So it's not traditional knowledge as opposed to scientific knowledge, but a kind of way of seeing that integrates really modern technologies, but also really powerful, you know, visions of, of the meaning of individuals as well as broad species. So I saw Kendra has a question there. That was a long-winded answer to what's the hopeful story there. <laughs> yeah, so in thinking about those stories, then what I was wondering is in this work as a historian, looking at, you know, documentary archival evidence of those kind of projects by scientists, but, but how much storytelling factored in, uh, particularly thinking about the indigenous stories that are told. So that the kind of, I mean, literature or, or tales about these animals, about these relations. So how do you work those into your book as also historical sources? Yeah, I haven't, I don't have an answer for that puzzle. I mean, one of the ironies of my career is I've spent, you know, my last two, three books have really focused on Northern watersheds, Northern landscapes. Um, and there's absolutely no way to write about Northern watersheds, Northern landscapes without really centering indigenous histories and also indigenous current and indigenous futures. Um, and throughout my career, you know, I've worked a fair bit with a number of students from First Nations and tribal communities, done some work with, um, you know, I serve on a number of binational forum committees run by Cliffwood Great Lakes Indian Fish and Wildlife Commission. So, you know, I try and make the, you know, the skills and tools small as they are that I have available to indigenous communities who, you know, who want to direct their own projects and think it might be useful to have some of Nancy's GIS students or wh whatever. I try and just offer my services um, guided by their projects rather than me saying, hey, I've got a cool project. You want to participate? But, you know, the irony is at a certain point, um, I, you know, I step aside. I have to step aside. I have to, I, I don't think it's my role to tell Indigenous stories or even now anymore to mine them for information, much as it's a powerful thing to do. So, and a number of my projects I, I collaborate with, um, like Kathy Brosmer was, was one of my collaborators in working on the loon section. Um, and she and I wrote a short essay. She's, um, she's Choctaw actually, but works for one of the Anishinaabeg bands here as their water resources coordinator. And she, throughout her you know, life has had loons as really powerful stories. And what's interesting is the tractor are from near the Gulf in Southern US. And so it, it helped me over, you know, see that this focus on breeding Northern populations was really problematic. It was just too small. But, you know, at a certain point, I think my role is just to help indigenous, you know, tribes find funding and find tools to do the work that they want to do. So, you know, it's great that eventually one puts oneself out of a job, you know, if one does the job right. So um, I, I'm really struggling with the question you ask, how do I use these stories? I mean, I've been so motivated throughout my career, like when 
Kate and I were up, it, it's right by the Siberian, the border with Siberia. We're sort of spending a couple of weeks on horseback with the Satsum communities as they were doing one of their major migrations from spring to summer pastures and, you know, worked with an interpreter and, you know, hung out with them in tents for a couple of weeks um, to, to live listen to their stories and ask questions and figure out what their experiences were. But, you know, the kinds of, the kinds of glimpses you can get from that are so partial. And the very fact that we worked with a translator made that an interpreter all the much clearer that, you know, you ask a question or you have, you know, Dava ask a question of this, you know, elderly herder and he answers it for like 20, 30 minutes. And then Dava turns to you and says, yes, he said, and you're like, okay, <laughs> let's, let's open that up a little bit. But it, it, it's, it, it's a sort of powerful experience of what we're all doing in the archives, what we're all doing with, you know, using anthropology. So I've, I've been really fortunate in my career to collaborate with a lot of ecologists and anthropologists and, archaeologists and just realize there's so many different ways of glimpsing these fragments of the past and piecing them together into a kaleidoscope. There's never one, one correct kaleidoscope vision you can put together. Well, and I think that's, uh, I mean, you, you, you mentioned two-eyed seeing. I mean, that's really what it's about. It's about recognizing that there are different ways of seeing and that the Western scientific way is not the only way of understanding the relations as well as the biology of these animals in this landscape. Um, and so, and it's about having that respect really um, to, to value that indigenous insight. And as you say, um, while not trying to just mine it somehow to make exactly. your story, right? So, so there is yeah. that, that part of it um, is really important as a, as a researcher. Now, you mentioned in the beginning that this started as a series of lectures that then became a short book. Uh, and I'm a fan of the short books. Uh, they're quite interesting. But I mean, it makes me curious then, because you said one of the things you had to cut was this, you know, the, the theoretical part on ghosts and so on. But is, is in a way that the only thing that's missing? If this was a standard length academic monograph, uh, would it be very different, you think? Yeah, um, an impossible to answer question. I actually think these 40 to 50,000 word books are becoming more and more standard, partly because rather than being a classic academic monograph, they can cross the boundaries to um, speak to broader publics. And, and I've always wanted to, to write, you know, all my books I've really aimed at kind of trade um, markets, whether or not it's successful is another question. So I've, you know, I've long been fascinated by world history. I just like read John McNeil stuff or talk to him. And I'm just like, wow, you're so brave to like write about all these places. Do you like, sorry, I just got an eye watch and I waved my hand around and it now thinks I'm going on an outdoor hike. And it's telling me that I don't know how to make these end. Sorry about that. Okay. <laughs> I'm talking about ghosts in the machine. It's like, ah, um, so I've, I've always felt like before you do, and, you know, when you're using an academic source, you need to read it in the original language and then maybe have a little translation next to you. And, you know, I suck at languages. I used to, when I simplified my own story, I used to be a medievalist. I did my undergraduate MAM Phil in medieval, right. You know, 
um, studies focused on Marjorie Kemp and the medieval woman mystics and my language skills were so poor and I just really wanted to be outside a lot more. So I jumped ship to become an ecologist and I also had enough of deconstruction pretty quickly in the 1980s. Um, but, you know, those kinds of um, powerful stories, yeah, it's hard to have to cut them out. Um, and I have a real tendency to go down rabbit holes in my research. And, you know, when I was writing Toxic Bodies, all of a sudden I had a 90 page chapter on the mystery of this one toxic chemical, toxaphene in Lake Superior fish. And I was like, huh, in a 250 page book, all of a sudden I have a 90 page chapter that doesn't really fit in. So uh, part of what's always helped me deal with the fact that, you, you know, short books have to cut out so much of the complexity is that I can always tell myself there'll be another book. This will go in my next book um, and then the next and then the next. So yeah, there, you know, how would this be different? It would have had a lot more archival sources. I would have uh, published it three years later when the archives opened up again, mostly, and it would have involved a lot more travel and hopefully richness of these things. I mean, I have some grad students now working on a National Science Foundation funded project that really goes into, they are able to go into much, much richer detail about the caribou histories and futures and genetics, because they have, you know, four years of funding to do this. Yeah, I mean, it's funny your watch went off. I mean, we have the most vigorous uh, book talks here. Mine tells me uh, 10 minutes before the end of every book talk that I need to stand up, but I, I, <laughs> I fight that urge. Yeah. So, or 15 yeah. minutes and you so, need to stand you up. You can resist, it's possible. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so all this leftovers then that you can't tell in these books that will become the next project then. So where are you going after this? What's the next book? Oh, yeah, that's a great question. And Kendra asked in her chat thing that, you know, it's, I really, um, you know, enjoy how you bravely bushwhack into new topics you know nothing about. She didn't say that, but that's the truth. You know, how do you um, sort of jump into something, you know, boldly new? And part of what I realized, you know, I was three times a year away from three different PhDs, one in medieval studies, one in uh ecology one in history, um, our environmental studies, which is the one I finally did. So I just finally realized I have a five-year attention span, which is a lot longer than, you know, many people who have like my husband, a five-minute attention span, so I think. Um, but it's a lot shorter than many scholars who can work on one topic for 40 years. And in some ways, I really wish I just stuck with counting trees or counting birds and I could just become the best bird counter, you know, in the world, but it's um, it's just not who I am. And so trying to learn new material, the fun part is when you just get absorbed in something entirely new. Um, and I've done that over and over again in my career. And at a certain point you have to cut yourself off and start writing um, and that's hard, but um, yeah, my, my next project is I started during COVID, I started painting a lot. Um, and I, for the past two years, really focused a lot on painting. So I think my next thing is going to be a graphic novel on really illustration more than sort of artistic painting, although some of that painting about climate change in the North, you know, through the eyes of a character who was Vanya, my last pit bull, my former pit bull. 
um, you know, confronting these changes. And my next project, my two next projects are going to be graphic histories, graphic novels. One of their so-called reindeer games, the reindeer translocations around the world to Iceland, to Alaska, which just became so complex and so fascinating. At times, the Sami, tran the Sami picked up reindeer and brought them to the Scottish because they felt it really sad that the Scots were so hungry after the war. So it wasn't just colonial power saying, "Ooh, we're going to cure the ills of indigenous peoples." It went the other direction at times. It's a really fascinating set of translocations. Um, and then another one about birds as messengers, birds as sentinels, as warnings of toxic, the classic canary in the coal mine. But I've just gotten really fascinated by graphic histories and graphic novels. And I'm focusing on painting now and just learning new digital programs, which are really hard to learn because I just want to pick up my brush and paint and have to deal with all this like masking. And anyway, digital art is very, very different than actual using your hand. So, so my, my future projects are graphic novels, graphic histories. Fabulous. I mean, it's so, so interesting to hear. Uh, so definitely looking forward to seeing what comes out of that. Um, our time is up, so we should uh, end this here. Uh, thank you, Nancy Langston, for talking about your book, Climate Ghost, Migratory Species in the Anthropocene. That's out now this year then with Brandeis University Press. But thank you, everyone. Can I answer two of the can I answer two of the questions really quickly? Sure, go ahead. Kendra and Ellen and Sarah are um, asked, are the lectures available? And yes, if you go to Brenda, if you just Google Mandel Lectures, Nancy Langston, they, they were recorded. And yes, having giving 50 minutes three 15-minute lectures to a very broad group of people completely changed my storytelling because you got to get to the point. I mean, they don't need to know every single little detail. So yeah, I, I find it really helpful. Just like giving lectures to undergrads who are brand new to something and having to fit it into 50 minutes, those often become the outlines for book chapters. Yep. So thank you so much, um, everyone, for your great questions and for showing up at whatever time it is, three o'clock. In your yes, so, so we're we're now at five o'clock. Um, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. So, but thank you all um, for joining us, and thank you for being our last speaker of 2021. Uh, so, closing out this year, it's been an absolute thrill to learn about all of these environmental humanities books, and we hope that all of you will join us uh, again in 2022.